Okay, I think we'll uh, go ahead and get started here tonight. Uh, welcome to the third of our uh, philosophy at LSE public lectures, which is brought to you uh, at the mix between the philosophy department and the Center for uh, Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences, and also the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, today, we have Eric Martin speaking to us about valuing the environment. Uh, Eric is doing a postdoc here at the LSE at the Center, and he's worked on philosophy and science studies in general uh, for his PhD at UC San Diego. And he's interested in environmental ethics. He's taught classes uh, on environmental ethics and uh, biology, philosophy of biology, and also the wilderness. So uh, without too much further ado, I'll turn it over to Eric here and see what he has to say. Thank you. Thanks, Ben, and thank you um, for coming tonight. Um, I'm going to put a fair number of ideas out on the table, sort of just in the interest of fostering a discussion. If something strikes you, I hope you'll ask a question afterwards, um, or just carry on to the drinks reception, um, where we'll continue our conversation. All right. So there's a story about the great French political theorist, Alexis de Tocqueville, on his visit to the US in 1831. He arrives in Michigan, my home state, in Detroit, which is then still a very small town. He and his companions are hoping to get away from the city, into the backwoods, in that no doubt mosquito-y summer. They seek to, quote, discover a place to which the torrent of European civilization had not yet come. And in one of his diary entries, he confides that Americans just can't understand their desire to get away from the city, rather than to go towards the cities. You see, Tocqueville was awash in European intellectual currents, including Romanticism, which construed the natural world as a place of sublime beauty, a place where the superficialities and trivialities of civilization could be cast off, a place where your genuine and true self could be manifest, a place where you could have an encounter with the infinite, the transcendent, the divine. It was more likely than in any cathedral. What about in the US? Well, there's a lot less reading of Wordsworth going on there. Let's put it that way. They were cutting down trees and fighting natives and settling the frontier. Tocqueville says that he wants to go out into nature. And the Michiganders keep insisting that he must really be speculating on timber or planning to build a road or something. And he's at pains to say, no, really, we, we actually just want to go outdoors into the woods. We just want to go camping. And the Americans can hardly believe what they're hearing. When I imagine this story in my mind's eye, it's always this big lumberjack-looking American who yells out in a pub somewhere, hey, get a load of Frenchie. He wants to take a walk in the woods. And the whole tavern erupts in merry, derisive laughter at the curious European. So the point of this story is just that the environment is not one simple notion. It is emphatically not just rocks and trees and critters out there. Rather, it's an idea that comes to us highly conditioned by culture, by religion, and by history. Tocqueville meant something very different when he made reference to the woods than did his burly American interlocutors. For the Americans, the woods were an economic resource they could use to scratch out an existence for themselves. The trees were commodities that could be transformed into meager livelihoods. The woods were close, they were possibly dangerous, 
and they were not a place for a casual stroll. For the traveling Frenchmen, the woods were unique and special, part of the reason for their travel to the New World. Indeed, for the past 150 years, nature has always been valued, has often been valued in an altogether more exotic way by those whose lives have not depended on close connections to the land. Environmentalism has often, though certainly not always, been the preserve of the upper classes. Now, to push that history of environmental thinking back further, it makes sense that people would have quite negative associations with non-human nature. After all, if you're not careful, it'll kill you. In the imagery of Jewish scripture, wilderness was that fearsome place outside the paradise of the garden. Geographically, such land in the ancient Near East is a desert, dry and unarable land that contrasts starkly with the garden from which Adam and Eve were expelled. That wilderness is also a term first used in Wycliffe's translation of scripture as the place where Israel wandered for 40 years following their exodus from Egypt. But if such a fearsome nature is a place of rootlessness and aimlessness, it could also be a spiritual proving ground. The wilderness is also where Jesus encountered Satan and where religious groups continue to look for rededication and renewal. More recently, the irreducible foreignness of non-human nature has been pointed out in refreshing detail by the brilliant German filmmaker Werner Herzog, whose films such as Grizzly Man and Encounters at the End of the World have articulated a humanism that is rather anti-romantic in spirit. Herzog finds some strains of environmentalism positively baffling for their anthropomorphizing of nature that would tame it and understand it as somehow good for human beings. The reality, his art suggests, is much bleaker and darker. Uh, human beings really are different and unique and set apart from nature. We're the only things that value. Nature is otherwise terrifyingly devoid of caring of any sort. This is, nature, this is Tennyson's Nature Red in Tooth and Claw in stark relief. Here's a quick video clip. clip. Uh, I hope the audio comes through for this. Uh, is that going to go? about the environment. Um, so I've been suggesting that for a very long time, nature, and especially its paradigmatic sense of wilderness, has often borne quite negative connotations, places that are scary and dark and inhospitable. How then did nature turn into something that we celebrate as redeeming and valuable today? Well, part of the answer, as I've already suggested, is rooted in romantic thought, and especially its doctrine of the sublime, suggesting a stance of wonder and awe and respect for nature. Another ideology that contributed to this amazing transition is rooted more in America than in Europe, and that is the ideology of the frontier. This ideology is articulated most clearly by the historian Frederick Jackson Turner in a famous essay of 1893. The frontier is a place where immigrants shed the trappings of civilization, relied on individual ingenuity, not only to vigorously work the land, but to reinvent direct democratic institutions. This was the source of American character and even American exceptionalism. The frontier was a gendered space where manliness and virility were cultivated. And these images still live with us today. Think Teddy Roosevelt's hyper-masculine displays of big game and big guns. Contrast that with the fashion-conscious urbanite, for which young people today have a revealing term, the metrosexual. Turner's warning in that 1893 essay was that America was running out of frontier in its continual westward expansion, 
While it was a necessary foundation for a particular political spirit, it was at the same time disappearing. The call for conservation of some such experiences of nature was not far behind. This is also the period of the very first national parks, which became an entire movement in the ensuing decades. Romanticism's articulation of a sublime, along with the doctrine of the frontier, together helped transform nature from a place of wandering to the bright beacon of salvation. As Thoreau noted, in wildness is the preservation of the world. Another child of those movements, and America's foremost spokesman for environmentalism, was John Muir, whose religious evocations of the Sierra Nevada landscapes have persisted as part of the lexicon of environmentalism, both in his Sierra Club and for generations of activists. As Roderick Nash put it, by the early 20th century, the devil's playground had become God's own cathedral. Um, I love this picture of uh, Teddy Roosevelt and uh, John Muir there. Can you imagine Barack Obama or David Cameron going out camping with uh, this scraggly bearded radical Scotsman? It's a wonderful scene. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said it was the best day of his life camping with John Muir. Pretty amazing stories. Well, the point of this little bit of intellectual history, which can serve as just a hint of the complex genealogy of modern environmentalism, is just that nature is not simply stuff out there. Our understanding of the environment or nature is always freighted with symbolic meaning and cultural significance. If people conserve of the, conceive of the environment in such diverse ways, it would make sense that we value it in diverse ways as well. We value it as an escape from our overcrowded and overscheduled urban lives. We value it for aesthetic reasons. We value the possibility of increased independence and self-reliance. We even value exposure to the elements, at least sometimes. Uh, this was a class that I taught at the University of California. We went backpacking after the class was over. And uh, thankfully, they were in good spirits, even as we were getting snowed on in the Sierra Nevadas here. Uh, people value the environment as a source of clean water. They value it. They value the planet as a living entity sometimes. They value rivers, personified as goddesses, as sacred. And they value the whole kit and caboodle of creation of the world as a creation of gods. Indeed, there have been recent lobbying efforts for climate change policies from the U.S. National Association of Evangelicals, hardly a group known for its progressive politics. For the remainder of the talk, I'd like to speak a bit more specifically about notions of valuation, roughly how and how much folks value things like clean air and biodiversity and the ability of our grandchildren to enjoy the same species that we have. That we all value such things has become a truism. It would seem that we're all green these days. Even former Speaker of the House and American conservative icon Newt Gingrich has gained a reputation for environmentalism lately. Even in the US, even red can be green. But how do we value environmental goods? Enough to make do with less energy or more expensive energy? Or enough to forsake municipal water availability? That's where the hard policy decisions are made, where there are difficult trade-offs between distinct goods, even between distinct environmental goods. So consider one case of, I think here in the UK, there is a case recently of trying to increase uh, forest um, uh, tree diversity, biodiversity, but that somehow traded off against the ability of these red squirrels to thrive because they, th they thrive mostly in uh, this particular group of conifers. 
So this is a trade-off between different environmental goods. A few recent examples I'm familiar with include putting a huge power line through a wilderness area, putting an open pit copper mine into a Washington state wilderness area, draining swamps to build cities in Florida, flooding canyons to water cities, or turning the Thurlmere Lake in the Lake District into the Thurlmere Reservoir. These are big problems. So let's get scientific here. Let's break this problem down to some component parts and see if we can impose some analytical framework on these complexities. Impressed with the market's ability to distribute many resources in an efficient manner, many policymakers have turned to economic tools for the construction of policies that distribute environmental goods, where bits of environmental goods are treated sort of like widgets on a marketplace. Before proceeding here, I'll just quickly note that this entire trajectory, that is, valuing the environment in terms of how good it is for us, how valuable it is for us, is not entered without caution. Some have claimed that such anthropocentric thinking is just insufficient for robust environmental protection, that it's too shallow. For example, the deep ecology movement thinks that to begin with questions about human welfare um, and to consider everything else in relation to that is just more of the same failed route we've been following all along, and that a new ethic built on the intrinsic value of the environment out there is needed. Their critiques of mainstream ethics, economics, and sometimes of science itself as tools of industrial thought are interesting, but I won't pursue them here, mostly because it seems to me best to start out with questions about human flourishing and see if we can get robust environmental protection out of that. If I didn't hope we could accomplish that, I might be more attracted to those more radical critiques. So I said that environmental goods are treated sort of like widgets on the marketplace. Many environmental goods obviously don't have markets, like clean air, but we could still treat them as if there were a market for them. And the state's way of mimicking such markets is called cost-benefit analysis. With CBA, we can put numerical price values on species, quanta of water, views, and the health effects of pollution. And with that, we can hopefully secure objective decisions about which policies to enact. The use of CBAs was mandated in the US in a 1981 executive order by President Reagan, not without some controversy. And it's used in various capacities all around the world. CBA is one of the primary tools of environmental decision-making. Uh, in California, uh, my most recent home, we have this bad habit of uh, electing actors to be, our, to be our governors. Well, the basic idea here behind cost-benefit analysis is really intuitive. You list the pluses and minuses of a decision and see how it balances out. You've probably all tried to make a list of the pros and cons of a hard decision before. And because I'm a historian of science, one of my very favorite examples of this in history is Charles Darwin's decision about whether to marry his cousin Emma. And uh, there's Charles, and this is actually a picture of the page. Um, to marry or not to marry, this is the question. And uh, he made a list of the pros and the cons. He said, you know, cons, uh, you don't get to travel as much, you don't have enough money to uh, spend on your own books. Um, you, uh, you're going to miss the company of hanging out and talking with, uh, with your mates because you have to be at home and got these mouths to feed and stuff. Um, but on the pro side, he said, well, you like the joys of family life. You might be able to have some kids. And companionship, you get some companionship. At least better than the dog. <laughs> That's his pro. 
Um, he was really, really fond of dogs, so he meant that to be really, it was, it was a good thing, but uh, it doesn't sound really nice. Anyhow, out of this list, he made a decision. What was his decision? QED, Mary, Mary, Mary. That's the answer, right? But somewhere in between making this list and making the decision, there's some magic happening, right? Somewhere, I mean, if you didn't know Charles, or if you didn't know what he wanted, just, just based on that list, you wouldn't know how he came to that decision. There's this magic involved in the decision itself. And the promise of CBAs is to remove the magic from such choices. The idea is that it objectively entails a choice, and it can do that because it uses numbers. So the hard choice of decision-making is replaced by pure arithmetic. I'm about to offer a few criticisms of CBA, but one of the best arguments in favor for them, I think, is simply that they do form a comprehensive list of um, interests, or they try to form a comprehensive list um, in this one single place or one single document. And that seems like a good thing insofar as it seems like a step towards the sort of objectivity that ensures it's not just powerful interests who are making all the decisions. In CBA, policies are compared with each other based on careful calculations of their respective consequences. Should we protect the watershed with its endangered species from development? Well, the costs of policy, that's, that's pretty straightforward. It's going to cost a little bit of money, you're losing revenue, um, yada, yada, yada. But the benefits, that's going to be harder, right? That's going to be the tricky part. What are the benefits that you get out of having more species around? Well, here are some examples of the types of value that economists have tried to calculate for bits of environmental goods. And as I explain them, I'll, I'll treat them as species, because in fact, there are a number of economists who um, write papers about the economic worth of particular species. So here's a typology of values. Uh, a commodity value, something can be bought and sold on the marketplace. That's the most straightforward one, right? So think for an alligator or something like that. Um, it's commodity value. Well, we make shoes and boots and fancy things like that out of alligator skin, right? So that's its commodity value, pretty straightforward. But the rest of these are going to be examples of amenity values. That's something that can improve your life in some non-material way. Scenic views, clear skies, the sight of a majestic bird or a rare species. Right? How much is that worth to you? People put price tags on that. Right? Further, this is even a little bit fuzzier. Moral values. Some people, for example, Henry David Thoreau, claimed that the close observation of species actually helped him to live a better life would be categorized under a moral value. An existence value. This is really interesting to me. Irrespective of anything's ever being used, what is, for example, a species worth to you? Now, you might think that given the utilitarian pressures to develop land, to extract resources from the land, environmentalists would be doomed, right? Um, think about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. There's tons of oil there. I don't know, millions or billions of pounds of profit waiting to be sucked out of the ground. And what do environmentalists have going for them? I mean, when's the last time you heard of somebody booking a vacation to the Arctic <laughs> National Wildlife Refuge? There's hardly any value there. I mean, people aren't going there. They're not seeing it. But surprisingly, when you ask people what it's worth to them, they respond on surveys that it's worth a fair bit, more than you might have thought, for this place that they don't know anything about. So I'm really intrigued by this existence value. It gives a little bit of hope to environmentalists if you want to stick within this framework. Furthermore, there's the option value, the value of keeping something that we don't currently use but might be used in the future. Um, for species, this means the value we place on the possibility that a currently useless species will one day become 
useful. For example, I don't know, you might find a, a really helpful wonder drug or something like that in the rainforest, right? That's the sort of, that's the sort of idea behind an option value. And these things can wildly fluctuate. Some things, it just seems like they're not worth anything. Just one more piece of grass in some grassland. But then all of a sudden, if it has a particular drought-resistant capacity, and if it seems like there's some genetic basis to that drought-resistant capacity, and if it seems like there might in the future be some way of splicing that into corn crops, oh my gosh, that little piece of grass that you're standing on could be worth millions of pounds. So this fluctuates wildly. Well, how are these numbers that we're listing here even generated? The first is the most straightforward. Um, oh, right, uh, we talked about that. Um, uh, the latter are all examples of contingent valuation, where non-market goods are assessed by asking people what they're willing to pay for them. So that's the fundamental metric of cost-benefit analysis, willingness to pay. Economists have devised very clever ways of getting access to such information. Not just direct surveys, right? I might ask you, hey, how much is something worth to you? But also uh, observations of their behavior that indirectly indicate financial worth. How bad does the water in Hyde Park Serpentine have to get before all the diehard London swimmers pay the fee to join the local club? Willingness to pay. Okay, so let me just give you a quick outline of the sort of logic of cost-benefit analysis. Let's do a little cost-benefit analysis, a little pretend one right now here in class. The policy up for consideration is, do we end this talk right now and go to the drinks reception, or do we keep going? And I ask each one of you, would you rather end this now, and how much is it worth to you? And let's say that every single person here says, yeah, this is a train wreck, this isn't going anywhere, let's go have a beer. And, and, and in terms of the price that you all put on it, let's say that you eat, each put about two pounds on it, right? But there's one person who disagrees, and that's Ben. Ben is a philosopher. He can eat this stuff up. He just wants to keep going all day long, right? Um, furthermore, despite being a postgraduate, Ben is fantastically wealthy, and he says it's worth 500 pounds to him for me to keep going. He really wants to hear the conclusion. So what do we do? All you guys want to go, but Ben wants to stay. What do we do? Well, it turns out we stay. And the reason that we stay is he put enough money down that it could sort of, in theory, pay off each one of you. Each one of you said it was only worth two pounds. His 500 could be used to cover each one of your two pounds. Okay? That's the logic in a very rough outline of what's called potential Pareto efficiency. And that's how CBAs um, get conducted. Um, Right. Uh, that's a rough sketch of the logic, at least. Um, so, and what we're trying to do is maximize efficiency in that process. Uh, why are we trying to maximize efficiency rather than something like everybody's welfare? Because interpersonal welfare comparisons are notoriously difficult to calculate. So preference satisfaction via willingness to pay is used as one of the best proxies. In other words, the justification of CBA's use in the public sector closely mirrors the justification of market's use in the private sector. Now, this, what I've just given you, is a very highly simplified presentation. The mathematics and the methods and the models that economists use are all very sophisticated, and an actual CBA can run into a length of several volumes, a very impressive big documents. But that's a, that's a rough outline of what's going on. Okay, those are CBAs. Now, there's a couple layers of problems with CBAs that I want to talk about. Um, oh. 
The first layer of problems I want to talk about is that CBA seems like it might privilege wealth, right? Ben was able to put so much money down because he was wealthy. Um, a second problem is that um, it, uh, if somebody abstains from putting a price value on, for example, their family lands uh, being dis because they're being displaced by a damming project, their vote doesn't count. So that person on their questionnaire, they answered that, I'm not going to write how much money it's worth to me. It's not worth any amount of money to me. That's called a protest vote, but that doesn't count. The only things that count are quantities. It can be a lot or a little, but it's got to be quantified. Furthermore, the third thing, there are ecological facts that make some environmental goods relevantly different from standard commodities. These have to do with nature's interconnectedness, the difficulty of isolating one particular species from the surrounding network and ecosystem, and also with irreversibilities like extinctions, which some economic models don't handle very well. Also, another problem, discounting. So everything is worth less in the future, right? Standard economic practice. But when it comes to environmentalism, this looks like it might be providing a rationale for displacing environmental harm onto the future. A very big problem, right? I'm not going to talk very much about that layer of problems. Um, I think they're serious. There's responses to them. Um, but I want to move on to a second layer of problems, which are more conceptual that have to do with value. Remember that CBA is part of the state's attempt to craft normative policy. As such, it could conflict with other methods of policymaking, namely political methods. And economists recognize this. I think I'm just a little bit out of order here. Um, so here's an here's a introductory textbook that uh, I used to read. Uh, Policies that come out of a democratic process may bear little relationship to what we think of as efficient approaches in particular environmental problems. So it's a potential problem. If there are distinct processes of policymaking, then we immediately, immediately see the possibility of a conflict. Just to heighten the intuitive worry here, we might enlist the infamous Larry Summers memo, written while he was chief economist at the World Bank, which just reminds us uh, that the mere use of economic methods is itself, far from being morally neutral, a decision that is loaded with value. Um, just, uh, you can read this at home, uh, but let's just point out the relevant parts. I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest wage country is impeccable. We should face up to that. I've always thought that underpopulated countries in Africa are vastly underpolluted. Right? Um, if you're going to make some carcinogenic toxic waste, where should, where should you put it? You should put it in a country with a high infant mortality rate. It'll be less harmful there than here, where people are living a long time. Right? Um, so what he's saying, in, in, in short, is something like, look, it's really too bad that we don't have an enormous vacuum that we could just suck all the toxic waste and bad air out of California and put it in the poor countries. Why would he want to do that? Again, because it follows the logic of potential Pareto efficiency. Those Californians would probably be willing to spend a few bucks, clean things up. Yep, they got the money around. Um, those Africans, would they be willing to take a few bucks? Yeah, they'd probably do that. Now, if this disturbs you, um, it's worth thinking about why it <laughs> disturbs you. Um, and maybe by the end of the talk, um, we'll have some more answers to that. So uh, there's this worry that CBA is an economic mechanism taking over uh, a partly political process. One author I'll cite along these lines is Mark Sagoff. In a widely reproduced essay, Sagoff writes that CBA is fundamentally flawed because it treats human beings as if we're only consumers. 
The only thing CBA takes into account is how much we're willing to pay, but it totally disregards all sorts of other values we might have that might not make it into the economic calculation. Values that couldn't be expressed through consumptive preferences would be opaque to CBA, and Sagoff says, so much the worse for CBA. When we're trying to formulate public policy, we're often supposed to be enacting social values. When America ended its policies of racial segregation, we weren't doing it based on economic criteria. It was just the right thing to do. When we enacted child labor policies, it wasn't because there was an economic problem. Arguably, at least, the economic side of things was just fine. Children were willingly entering into contractual labor agreements. But we ended that because it was wrong. Again, during current debates about the legality of gay marriage, there are sometimes economists who chip in to the conversation with analyses of how such policies could affect the state coffers. But those analyses don't seem relevant to question that seems like it's about autonomy and about fundamental social arrangements. So Sagoff groups many environmental issues in with these other political issues along these lines. Occupational safety and health are another one. An upshot here is that even if some CBA calculated that we should keep polluting, it might still be some moral and political justification for stopping our polluting. Underwriting this argument, Sagoff says that people aren't just consumers. We have this split identity to us. We're both consumers and we're citizens. As consumers, he says, we're egocentric. We're looking out for ourselves only. But as citizens, we articulate communal values. Further, he says, consumer preferences are merely subjective wants, along the lines of, I like chocolate, you like vanilla. Okay? While citizen values can be objectively secured through an iterative process of rational dialogue. I'm attracted to some of Sagoff's conclusions. I, too, worry about what CBA captures and what it fails to capture. I worry whether environmental goods are really substitutable with alternative commodity bundles of the same price. And I question whether consumer preferences ascertained through market rationality should be normative for public policies. But I guess I'm a bit suspicious about his arguments for that conclusion. In particular, it doesn't seem to me that consumer choices are necessarily as egocentric as he says they are. I think we can probably express other more altruistic values through our consumptive practices, maybe the way that some people buy chocolate or coffee or something. Uh, further, it seems like his Kantian ideal of finding objectively true communal values is not the right way to think about political deliberation. Further, his division of personhood into equal parts consumer and citizen doesn't quite resonate with me. It seems we're many things to many people, and those identities or modes of thinking aren't neatly captured by his twofold division. My concerns, I suppose, come from elsewhere. Cost-benefit analysis is one applied branch of utilitarianism, one of the main contenders in ethical theory. There are other ones. Okay, so the main contenders would be utilitarianism. This asks, the sort of fundamental question you're asking is, what kind of state of affairs should I bring about? Right? It's not about particular actions. It's not about motives. If you ask the question, is it right or wrong to murder, there's no simple answer. Right? You say, well, it depends on what the outcome is. If you murder somebody and there's a good outcome, then that's good. Right? Um, the other contenders would be deontology or rights-based theories, right? where we think about the, the fundamental question is, what do I owe to other people? 
What am I obliged to do? What sort of rules do I have to follow? And these are the sorts of things that trump utilitarian calculations, right? The third contender for the main tradition of ethical theory is virtue ethics, where the main question is, how can I develop a moral character? It's about the sort of person that you're becoming. What would the virtuous person do in this circumstance, right? These are the three main contenders. Um, CBA is a branch of utilitarianism. And utilitarianism has three components. Let's look at these three components. For one, it's welfarist. That is, the only thing that's intrinsically good on this theory, and not just good as a means to some other good, is happiness. For people like Mill and Bentham, they equated this happiness with uh, pleasure. It's consequentialist also. That means the morality of an act is determined by its outcome, not, for example, by people's motivations. Okay? Um, also, it's an aggregative, maximizing approach. The action is moral that produces the greatest total amount of happiness. And so I think what I find problematic in CBA is this assumption, or at least part of what I find problematic in CBA, is an assumption that comes out of the first and the third components of utilitarianism here, which is value monism and value commensurability. The idea that all values reduce to one ultimate value. Everything that's good is an instance of one thing, which is happiness or pleasure. The contrasting view is value. So that's monism, right? Um, value monism says one super value. The contrasting view is value pluralism, that there are many distinct and irreducible values. It's important to note that at this point that kinds of values under consideration here are intrinsic or non-instrumental values. So nobody doubts that there's lots and lots of instrumental values in the world. Instrumental values are not good in and of themselves, but they're good for some other purpose. An example here is money. It's not good just to have it sitting around in my pocket. It's good for what it can get me, right? Bicycles and pints for my friends, stuff like that. Uh, so there are clearly lots of instrumental values, but philosophers part ways on how many intrinsic values there might be. Many have held that the one super value to which all others reduce is happiness. Sure, valuing the sight of giraffes in the wild might be good, but it's only good insofar as it contributes to the one super value, individual happiness. Jeremy Bentham might be the best proponent of this view, and possibly John Stuart Mill as well, though Mill's account is slightly complicated by his admission of higher and lower pleasures. Mill thought that the higher pleasures of reading poetry or maybe helping others or doing philosophy are qualitatively better than the baser physical pleasures, like maybe drinking a cold beer after giving a philosophy talk. Other philosophers have sought to expand this list of basic values. So G.E. Moore thought that knowledge, um, so they get happiness, but um, also knowledge um, is a distinct and fundamental value. Even when it contributed nothing to human happiness, it was a constitutive good. Other great candidates probably include justice, equality, and beauty. A bit of reflection might convince you that these values could be difficult to compare with one another, much less reduced to a particular quantity of happiness. It's difficult for me to answer the question, how many giraffe, giraffe sightings is it worth for two weeks of backpacking in Scotland? Thinking of environmental goods, one might further include in this list, I'm not sure, um, things like diversity, rarity, 
the ability to flourish in harsh conditions. These are different environmental values that it seems to me have been articulated. These values are the standards one accepts for evaluating things and states of affairs. Value pluralism, I think, is the best view for accommodating, accommodating our rich vocabularies of evaluative practices. In contrast, to adopt a monistic view of value can impede our self-understanding as creatures with diverse standards. And insofar as our public policies should sometimes express a public self-understanding, then it can impede good policy, too. So this might be a place to fend off one line of criticism that would arise from um, some economic arguments. For example, uh, um, Milton Friedman's 1953 paper, which is a very influential description of what he calls positive economics. And his argument, if I recall right there, is just that um, economics is the sort of thing that's uh, a science. It's not concerned with figuring out all the messy stuff going on in your head. It's not trying to be a great description of all this stuff that I'm talking about. It's making simplifications. It can treat people as if they were individuals with these market values. And if it can generate some good predictions based on that, then game over. That's what economics is about. That's good enough if you can get a few good predictions out of it. Right? And I wonder sometimes um, whether this line of thinking is, is influenced much by uh, strains of thought like behavioral economics, which also sort of tried to black box the human mind. Right? Um, but Milton Friedman says, look, I'm not trying to take into account all this psychological stuff. Right? Um, I think that's fair. I think it's probably a helpful response in some cases, but maybe not as much in others. Um, so in particular, um, it might not be as good when self-knowledge is an important part of a public policy. Then, the, uh, then it seems like the policy can't afford to just black box people's very unpredictable verbal responses while only taking into account their consumptive habits. So back to pluralism. One way to think about pluralism is that there are genuine discontinuities in value. Values aren't just matched between each other on a single spectrum but they form multiple distinct spectra. There is no common measure. We might say they're incommensurable with one another, like the problem of adding inches and degrees Celsius. A potential problem with this view is that it doesn't seem to leave us with any straightforward way to decide between distinct values. People have argued that pluralism either leaves us paralyzed, unable to make a choice, or if we did choose, it would be an arbitrary or irrational choice. Classic statement of this view is found uh, with uh, John Stuart Mill. Um, there must be some standard to determine the goodness and badness, absolute and comparative of ends or objects of desires. Whatever that standard is, there can be but one. Uh, he goes on. So if we think that we can and do make rational choices between different values, then it seems to follow that there must be some one super value. We've seen that for Mill, that is pleasure. I'm not so sure this is absolutely necessary. There's a few possible ways out of this problem. One is just to sort of pick on Mill's logic a little bit, just to sort of really nitpick about his reasoning a little bit. Um, he seems to be saying that um, to say for every decision, there must be some way of deciding between it. Um, then I don't think it follows that um, it's equivalent to say that for uh, there's, there's one way of deciding 
that suffices for all decisions. Um, you see, there's a, there's a subtle shift in the scope of the quantifier there. It's like saying, um, for every human being, there is somebody who is their parent. That's fair. Um, moving from that to, um, there is some human being who is everybody's parent. Right? The second one is, is different. It's, um, it's a little bit um, crazy. So you could, you could say that his reasoning here doesn't quite follow. You could say that, no, you don't need one fundamental value. Um, in fact, you can, um, you can have a number of different scales. Um, and the literature gets very complex at this point, and people talk about different priorities of different sorts of values, but I think there's a few problems in that route. Another way to switch it, another way out of this problem is to switch over to some other ethical theory, like the other ones that we mentioned, deontology or virtue ethics. And you can formulate a version of that that accommodates value pluralism and just deny that we have to go into the business of trading off in the first place. So I'm talking about all these distinct kinds of values, right? And I'm saying that the problem here is like how to decide between them when you have to trade off with them. But you can switch into a different framework where the goal of the theorizing isn't to maximize or to trade off at all. Right? Um, in these other views, we choose values, we commit to them, in doing so we might sacrifice other values, and sometimes there's a kind of tragedy in those sacrifices, but we're not in the business of maximizing. Right? So a third very direct answer is that the perceived need for ethical theory to deliver a uniquely determined best answer is just misdirected. On this view, sometimes the data just underdetermine the best answer. You could end up with a few different rationally acceptable pathways. So I'm saying ethics might not tell you exactly what to do. Sometimes we might just agonize without any specific ability to order the different values that we have. There might be several pathways available to us. This may sound defeatist from the point of view of ethical theory, but I think it's both plausible and familiar. Think about, for example, the choice of whether to pursue a life of action or a life of contemplation. Um, are you going to be a philosopher or are you going to be an activist? Right? Um, tough choices. They're just two very different routes. And sometimes you might not have any overriding priority or umpiring rule that tells you which one to do. <coughs> so I do think there's an important role of ethical systematizing as far as it can go, but it's also important to recognize if and where the limits to such theorizing might be. I believe it's the job of philosophy to help make things clear, not to make them simple or easy. Finally, if I'm arguing against one tool, that is cost-benefit analysis, what would I replace it with? What's my answer? Do I have a solution? Well, advocates of cost-benefit analysis understand it as making public institutions, um, let's go back to that. Um, advocates of CBA understand it as making public institutions more responsive to citizen values. But it fails if those values aren't captured by commodity values. That's what I was saying before. CBA leaves some important stuff out. The best alternatives, in my view, are to foster deliberative institutions and venues where reasons can be exchanged and tested against one another. Rather than making public environmental policies more like the market, I'd suggest making them more democratic. That's accomplished by taking seriously citizens' voices and reasons and principles. 
not by satisfying unexamined wants as interpreted by some economists. That could happen at venues like, I don't know, philosophy courses, and public lectures, and debates, and films, and museums, and most likely policy meetings, but really anything where people come together to discuss and trade their ideas. That said, the structure of such institutions might matter a lot. The overbearing uh, philosophy professor forcing her views onto her students would not foster the democratic values we seek to cultivate. Social relations of equality are needed for the right kind of political deliberation. Further, it seems like real reform to our shared social, legal, and ethical heritage is most likely to come from a place of collective action, not from a place of valuing individual wants. If people have environmental concerns that can't be adequately expressed through market norms of commodity consumption, then they will not be captured by the standard of willingness to pay. Sagoff's criticisms of cost-benefit analysis are well taken, but not because there are two fundamental aspects of human identity, consumer and a citizen. Rather, it's because we hold many irreducibly different values. Some might be expressed through consumptive processes, but many won't. For example, the ideal of shared stewardship of shared national parks is a value whose satisfactory expression can be formulated only in a democratic forum. And the reluctance to put a price on the value of communal lands, perhaps in your tribe for many generations, reflects a very real value. But part of its essence is recalcitrant to measurement by contingent valuation. Putting a price on things is not just an exercise in using a common measuring rod, which would be money, but it's a social act with social meaning. I hope you'll agree with me on one point, which is that there's at least some things that are not adequately expressed through market norms. Take friendship. To ask for the price value of a friendship is to misunderstand the sort of thing that friendship is. That would be making a category mistake. This establishes that even if markets are great for distributing some things, they're not good for distributing others. So, just by way of conclusion, I started by telling you how many intellectual trends are apparent in Western thinking about nature. But within the complexities of history, it's possible to discern a transition of sorts from nature as distant and awful to nature as wonderful and praiseworthy. These trends, arising largely in the 18th and 19th centuries, were, seed, were the seeds for modern environmentalism, and we are heirs to them today. People experience nature in many different ways, and we have a rich diversity of evaluative attitudes towards nature. I think these reflections on the cultural underpinnings of environmental thought may help to motivate both the significance and the tenability of value pluralism. Whatever else value pluralism is, it's got to be more than just contingently varying effective responses towards the world. And maybe the cultural roots of our stances towards nature help to highlight some of these distinctive and deeply embedded values. The appeal of economic methods and the value monism they incorporate is perhaps their shortcoming as well. You get quantification and comparability, but a loss in the richness and texture of our complex normative ideas. I recognize a plurality of environmental values 
species richness, fragility, health, the ruggedness of mountains, the textures of different rocks, the violence of a storm, the power of a waterfall. Even if these are just, um, even if these are not all just types of pleasure, and even if there is no common currency that we can use to trade between these values, we can still make reasoned decisions about how to make our way in the world and how to construct policies that rely on diverse goods. That will depend on deliberative procedures and institutions. The view I end up with is indeed messy, but no more so, I think, than is necessary for the hard business of living well with one another. So, it seems to me that morality and aesthetics and politics necessarily have a continued role to play in these difficult decisions about how to protect and use the environment. This is a very important conversation to keep having, and it's one to which I hope philosophers can contribute a pinch of clarity, or at least help keep the conversation going. Thanks very much. And uh, we've got a bit of time for uh, some question and answer before we head over to the drinks reception. Um, yes, thanks very much. Yeah, that's right. I had to go over this very quickly. And in fact, it does seem to be the case that in each um, tradition of ethical theorizing, there is room for it to be uh, for it to take a monistic and a pluralistic view. That's absolutely right. Um, and yes, there are these well-known um, uh, other cases of uh, people who want to talk about multiple distinct, multiple distinct goods within a utilitarian framework. There's also um, lists of objective goods sometimes that people have that they think that they can um, you know, put into uh, uh, a framework of, of utilitarianism. Yes, that's right. Um, and of course, there's, there's room for it because it's been done. Um, I think they, um, I, yeah, there's, there's certainly room for them, but I guess I do think that this process of trying to have uh, deliberative um, bodies gets at something important about the nature of the reasons that we 
offer for things, that, some, that there's something embedded within this sort of um, notion of the practices of reasons giving that we have that comes out fruitfully in these certain um, deliberative procedures that just doesn't come out um, one bit in the sort of um, um, valuational commodity kind of procedures. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, yeah? Let's, let's talk about friendship for a second. Suppose someone came to you and you have a, you have a very good friend from college and uh, someone said, a very wealthy person said, I'll give you a certain amount of money if you agree never to speak to that person again. That person is out of your life forever. This is a loss to you. You like that person. You'll hurt that person. But the question is, is there enough money to make you do that? Certainly $1,000 wouldn't do it, but what if you got enough money to fund climate change? What if you got enough money to inoculate all of the children in South Africa? So here's my question. Does there exist a number that would make you do that? Or can you say no such number exists? Well, I think, um, I mean, if it's an empirical question, I think people will, will vary. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if there's a literature on this or not, but um, my suspicion is some, a, a lot of people will say, sure, of course, there's some such number, um, and that some people will enter protest bids um, at that point and say, um, no, that's, you're sort, of, you're sort of barking up the wrong tree when, when you're talking about that. But I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I see your point. I mean, I think part of your point is that um, when you push people's intuitions in the right way that um, most all of us can um, turn out some sort of utilitarian intuition at some point. Um, and that would be one instance of that. And I think that's true. And I think that's actually part and parcel of um, what I've come to see is, is um, some of my own discontent <laughs> with, the, with the sort of main traditions of ethical theorizing, I think, um, that at certain points um, we can, intuition pumps get us going very different ways. And I think, um, on the one hand, sometimes I think, well, they're not all that helpful. But then in other moments, I think to myself, well, it, it genuinely is the case that people um, value things in, in different There are times when we take promises and obligations very seriously indeed. And there's times when um, we think that you know outcomes are um, much more important than anything else. Um, so that's part of what I was trying to formulate a little bit um, towards the end of the talk um, was was something about the kind of the kind of limits of thinking about ethical theories as these sort of um, scientific tools um, that that list the full set of theoretical primitives, um, the sort of basic elements of a theory, and build it all up and give you a determinate correct answer. Um, I guess uh, I think that a lot of work in ethics can be done without um, needing to sign on to sort of one particular uh, tradition or another. And it seems to me that there's, there's actually interesting, fruitful work being done by some people who um, you know, are, are able to eschew such positions. That's a good question. Luke? Mm -hmm. Put in there. Yeah. But once you do that, I mean, 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Thanks. Um, I think maybe I was speaking a little bit loosely towards the end there when I was using the term commodity value, and I should have spoken a little bit more carefully. Um, the suggestion at that point was that indeed there are some sorts of things that don't make it into those that topology evaluations that I gave you uh, very well. Um, now, from the environmentalist point of view, I mean, if you're within this framework, yeah, the, 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 the big goal is you know, get as much stuff as possible in there, right? The problem is that stuff's not making it into um, the market. You want to make sure that you know, these environmental goods that you value are getting priced accurately. Um, but I, I guess the suggestion was that there, there are things, there are certain types of things and certain scenarios and situations in which um, values don't make it into that list that I gave you. Um, so so there's the, the protest bids and um, various instances of um, people not being able to put prices on those things. So, so um, the idea is, yeah, that there's this effort to generate the sort of list of the, the types, of, types of values, and that if you can you know, slot the right numbers in the right, um, in the right topology there, then you're all the way home. Um, the suggestion was that, um, and I didn't, I didn't work this out well enough, was just that um, despite there being, I mean, th in practice, yes, that there are, in fact, numbers that are assigned there, um, that there's conceptual problems in the assignment of those numbers in the first place, uh, aside from the fact that some things just aren't registered at all. You know, thinking about, like, Carl Sagan has this story that, you know, there's a, um, Mark, Mark Sagoff? Mark yeah. Sagan. Yep. And with Carl Sagan. Yeah. Mark Sagan together. <laughs> <laughs> so we stick to Mark Sagan. He has this story that you know, there is this wilderness, um, and we're going to build a, a ski resort. There, yeah. Right? No, that's an actual case. There is a, there is a, there's a big litigation in, um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Disney was going to build a, a Disney-themed ski resort. Yeah, and all of the students get enthusiastic. No, they never go to the wilderness area. They would go yeah. to If that works out right, I think um, it, it's a sort of in theory, it might be more of an in theory and practice thing. I mean, if it works out correctly, but I think part of what it means to work out correctly in this instance is to have an exchange of, of reasons and ideals. So I think that particular case that Segoff uses, it might be easy because it's like high up in the pristine wilderness of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, maybe everybody knows something about that, but I think um, what it would mean to do that accurately in a lot of other real-world cases, you'd have to have a sort of conversation about the sort of people who live there and what they do and how they think about the land. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's some sort of important role to be said for these um, sort of exchanges somewhere along the way. And I don't know, I mean, maybe I wonder, you know, if, if there's a way of building in these sort of um, deliberative practices into you know into cost benefit analysis, it seems like it would be much more uh, much more robust. It would capture a lot more of the things that 
um, people think that they want. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, the spirit of all these conversations that I'm citing, I mean, I think, I think all the players and the stakeholders in these different theoretical conversations all count themselves as, you know, environmentalists of some stripe or another. I mean, they all are making good faith efforts. Um, all the different economics texts that I, I crack open um, to learn about um, environmental economics, you know, they, they all say that the fundamental purpose of doing these exercises is to take care of the planet. Um, that said, of course, I mean, as, as this talk showed and as you're well aware, I mean, people part ways about how to go about doing that. I mean, I cited Newt Gingrich as an example of someone who's he's talking about environmentalism, but, you know, he's, I mean, his, his economic ideas, it's um, all, all carrots for corporations and, and no sticks, um, et cetera. So people, people have lots of different ideas about how to do that. Um, so your, your suggestion was that there's, there's something in particular about the notion of uh, growth that was particularly threatening to, to the environment? That's, that's a big, hard problem, <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess... I don't know as much about the particular policies they're making reference to, but I mean, I'm certainly sympathetic to, to what you're saying. Um, and yeah, it's, it's something, I mean, I, I, I'm not enough of an economist myself to have um, anything sophisticated to say about um, this notion. I mean, it's something that, of course, crops up early on in, in one study. I mean, is, is an economy that's predicated on growth compatible with serious environmentalism? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I did. I did skip over these things that seem um, seem significant and didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, yeah, I worry about these things. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. I sympathize with you. Uh, yep. In, the back. Yeah, uh, in liberal democracies, there is this um, very strong tradition of uh, utilitarian tradition in ethics. There's also this uh, notion of um, um, justice as fairness from John Rawls, who that's very influential. Have you come across this? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm certain. I'm certain there are many. I mean, Rawls, of course, is um, widely influential. Um, one part of my talk that he, um, this is a, a small corner of the talk that he was relevant to. I mean, he's um, known for developing some of these um, 
uh, lexical priority rules for different values um, and the sort of ranking that I talked about. You know, it's difficult to compare these things that are on different scales. Well, he's got these ideas about how you can how you can rank some some values only when you have certain values satisfied, and then you can move on to other values. Um, yeah, so he's he's all over the place, um, and I'm not sure exactly in what ways people might be using you know original position sort of thought experiments and, and stuff like that. I actually haven't come across too much of that. But. Um, maybe you? Yeah, you mentioned that you weren't going to talk about um, uh, values that came from, uh, mm. from the intrinsic mm. value of the environment. Mm. Um, but you were only going to talk about uh, the values that uh, we, we draw from nature as human beings. Now, I, I wonder if um, uh, it would be possible to devise a methodology according to which if we, could, if we couldn't uh, come to a conclusion from uh, you know way, ways which are to do with uh, humans, uh, how humans value the environment, that we that we could as uh, uh, as a sort of secondary method think about uh, intrinsic values. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, like I said, maybe I'm being um, somewhat traditional and stodgy in my philosophy of being um, sort of fundamentally anthropocentric, I guess, in the way that um, I, I, I think about um, doing environmental ethics. Um, but I do think we can get more out of this than, for example, Kant got out of it. Um, for a long time, I mean, I think there's been a lot of confusion, actually, between um, the um, valuers themselves and the objects of value, that is, the, the valuing agents and the valuing patients. Um, people have made a lot of, a lot of confusing uh, statements, sort of equating the two, those two things. And I think it has a lot to do with Kant. Um, maybe he's the source of a lot of philosophical confusions, I don't know. Um, Kant thought that, yeah, only, um, only valuers could, could be objects of value. Um, valuers were um, a subset of human beings, rational agents, okay? um, members of the kingdom of ends, that's what he called them. Um, and, and those are the only things that get genuine respect on his ethical theory. Um, other things in the world are all instrumental uses. Right? Um, and then so you want to ask, well, um, what about the cat? Why does it seem wrong to go around kicking cats? And Kant has an answer to this. Um, but it remains fundamentally um, too anthropocentric, I think. He says the reason that we shouldn't go around um, you know, punting cat, cats um, is because uh, he's got this famous sentence that it, um, that it, that it makes, uh, makes men harder in their, in their dealings with one another. Right? So it makes us worse human beings because, because we've been walking around kicking cats all day long. I think we can do better than that. So I think... Um, my view would be um, you, can extend, um, you can extend the circle of what gets moral considerability. This has been a huge source of debate in environmental ethics is you know, what, what sorts of things in the world get moral considerability? And this sort of arises out of a conversation that I think Aldo Leopold probably started. He has this great metaphor of the sort of, the sort of um, moral circle widening, right? He says, a long time ago, only certain you know, upper class landed you know, white males were the only things with um, moral considerability. And, and since then, in the progress of history, we've been expanding our ethical horizons. And although Leopold in, I think, 1946 says, it's time to expand it beyond human beings now 
into the land itself. And he's got this idea that, you know, what's good for the health of the land, that's the good thing to do. And then you generate immediately a number of philosophical quandaries based on this, because what if, for example, the overpopulation of deer is hurting the health of the land? Now you've got a conflict between animal rights and all these deer running around and what's good for the land. Or what if it's not deer, what if it's people that are overpopulating and overrunning the land? What do you do then? Well, so this is the conversation that we're working in, right? Expanding this circle. I think we can expand this circle in certain ways. It seems to me that um, we can genuinely care about the flourishing of the natural, of the natural and non-human world. Um, the reason that we don't kick cats is because we genuinely care about the cat's flourishing. The cat has goods, the cat has interests in and of itself, that's independent of human beings, okay? So it has um, things that we care about, but it does, I mean, those, those goods that it has are not independent of human beings. I mean, it takes, it still requires a human valuer to make it valuable, right? So value is the sort of thing that's a relational quality. It arises between two different things. It's always a human and something else. So we can care in the intrinsic um, flourishing of the cat and of other parts of the natural world. So I think uh, my anthropocentrism is not quite as um, severe as a lot of other people's might be. Um, but again, I make the analogy with, with friendship or something like that, that um, you know, part of what it means to be a friend is to um, extend ethical consideration towards some other thing. And the reason that is good is because it's good for me to do that, right? It's actually good for me to care about the flourishing of this other thing. So it's still fundamentally anthropocentric. And I did say that, yeah, I'm, I, I guess I, I have this, this optimism that somehow if we um, understand ourselves in the right way and understand the natural world in the right way, that we will be able to hopefully craft a, a really robust and significant environmental ethic and environmental policy. And if you ask me why I have this optimism, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's misguided. Maybe it's too um, tender-hearted of me or something like that. But you know, you know when, he, when you look at John Muir's writing, I mean, in, the, in 1913, he's battling this big fight, the biggest losing fight ever. Hetch Hetchy Valley is being flooded in California. People said it was as beautiful as Yosemite Valley. This place was amazing. And it was, um, the policy under consideration was, do we totally flood it in order to make water for the city of San Francisco? And, you know, John Muir is bearing this huge burden. He's fighting this fight almost by himself against all these policymakers, all these politicians. He's saying, no, you can't flood this place. Um, <coughs> he still has this kind of optimism throughout that, you know? He says, um, if people, you know, the way he puts it is, if people can just get out and hear the preaching of the trees, then they'll understand. Um, I'm not sure if I would use that language, um, but I guess, I guess I am optimistic that pe if people understand um, the significance of our connection with the land, that this has to be the starting point of our ethical theorizing, the fact that we live in this place and in relation to it and to fundamentally dependent on it, that it will be around long after we're around. You know, I guess I have that sort of optimism. Maybe I shouldn't. Yeah. Um, I, I, I came late to your lecture, so it may be that uh, I've missed some point relevant to the issue I want to raise. It, it seems to me that, that you've raised a, a lot of 
good points that are important and, and necessary. But it, it, it also seems to me that uh, it, it's not very down to earth in what you've been saying. And for example, the, the, the people coming here and listen to a lecture and that has created a, an environment of an artificial summer with this artificial, artificial heating, which is not necessary. You, you could, we could, if, uh, when I came in here, I had to strip off two layers of clothing just because of the environment in here. And, and this is typical all over the country and all over the Western world. And the, the, the point is that some people are using a great deal more energy than, than, than other people. A rich American probably consumes more carbon than, than a rich Chinese man, and a poor American probably uses more energy than a, than a poor Indian. Mm -hmm. And it, it's all very well saying we, we need to reduce our carbon emissions, but we, we should focus most of all on, on rich and powerful people because they are the worst mm -hmm. by, mm -hmm. by extremes. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so the, the point is that it, 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 when people talk about an egalitarian society and, and reducing the difference between people who are poorly paid and people who, who are rich. Well, shouldn't we have something similar about carbon emissions as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, your points are, your points are well taken, and um, you're right. I mean, all the time we find ourselves in these situations where, um, yeah, you, you just wonder about, uh, I, mean, I mean, if the, this sort of question that you're asking would be exacerbated if um, this were at a conference in... I don't know Moscow that we all flew to to get to, right? And so we're all we're all talking about these things, but maybe um, not practicing what we see as our ideals or something like that. I mean, no, these are these are really important and difficult issues. I mean, it certainly isn't the first time that philosophy has been accused of um, not being down to earth enough. Um, but I guess I think that there are very um, close to the ground sort of consequences of you know the way that these sorts of procedures are done, um, and it's a question I think that is suitable for people like philosophers to work on. So I mean, if it's a question about why come here and have this sort of conversation, this question about how sciences work and how economics work and how it's related to policy making and stuff like that. Um, that's a sort of uh, rich, multidisciplinary kind of conversation to have, and it's the sort of conversation that some philosophers, um, you know, have had very sophisticated things to say about. That you know, just they're bringing something to the table that not just an economist would bring to the table, right? So I think um, it's a good sort of conversation to have in this this kind of setting. Um, and yeah, as to your points about activism, yeah, of course. I mean. Um, these are, these are hard questions that all of us face. I mean, I always face this with my students, right? Um, the extent to which um, their, their um, assignments and their grades are based on you know, theoretical paper writing, or, or some of my students want to be activists themselves, and is that something that, you know, is, um, that we're in the practice of fostering in philosophy courses, and these um, questions about the relationship between 
um, practical reason and, and theoretical reason. I think that you're, you're bringing up these very important points. Um, and I'm sympathetic with you. I, I understand what you're saying. And yeah, thanks. Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I, I don't want that statement to be quite so blanket and universalizing. Um, I actually don't know quite, I, I don't think there's any easy rule about how cost-benefit analysis is used in Europe. I mean, it's used in different ways by different people, right? Um, and I think, you know, th this sort of logic and these sort of examples are very important. We do have to do some number crunching to come up with good policies. We can't just run around wasting money, spending it on anything that we want to, right? Um, so there do need to be calculations of efficiency of some kind. My suggestion is that our calculations of efficiency don't determine the policy, that we, we try in as much as possible to use democratic and deliberative processes to determine a policy you know, that way, and then once we have our sort of social goals and social ideals, that we can you know, craft efficient policies and routes to get there. Right? Um, so I guess I don't want to make, make it sound like I'm trying to change like the entire kind of framework of policymaking. Um, but yeah, the suggestion was um, that somehow um, the goals of some of these CBAs, I mean, once, once their goals are formulated very specifically, um, there are certain parts of them that um, democratic discussions would be um, best served um, to, to, to get to that point. Uh, one very quick question, and then we'll head over to the drinks reception. Yeah. Oh, go ahead.
That's a really interesting idea, thanks. Um, I don't know, I'd have to hear a little bit more about how that would work out. My suspicion is that you're actually not putting aside um, considerations about valuation in these sorts of cases. You're still talking about values. Um, so for example, in the case of maybe like the sort of um, minimal impact kind of value, that's, it, it, it is still an important value. In fact, it's one of the predominant ones that a lot of people have when they go outdoors. I mean, um, you know, there's something about, you know, when you see... Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. really interesting. I'm not sure exactly what that would look like, um, but um, that sounds that sounds really interesting. I mean, um, you it's know, all, I really think it's on the lines of what you were kind of hinting at when you were talking about like connections with the land and things. That's, that's what I think. Yeah. Really have to be built upon. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, there's much to be said there. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's interesting sort of methodological questions about how ethics is done. I mean, um, intuitions do play an important role in ethical theorizing. I mean, they sometimes they serve as the data, oftentimes they serve as the starting point or the foundation, as you said. Um, so uh, the types of you know, I hadn't really thought too much about that. Sort of like this, the sort of building blocks out of it and what you start with. Um, seems like uh, yeah, that could be a really fruitful way to proceed. But I'd like to think about that a little bit more. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you very much, Eric. Let's uh, give him another round of applause.